The third of the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. And this is intriguing, just that the mind can look at itself. You wonder how it can do this. Somehow it can, it's fast enough to play tennis with itself. It somehow can observe itself and act at the same time. I think that these things, this self-observation actually, perhaps it doesn't go on simultaneously. Maybe you don't really have two minds, but you have the impression that you do because of the, the rapidity of going from the point of view of the observer to the observed. So this is possibly what's going on. This type of uh, speculation about the activities of the mind is quite remarkable uh, at the time of the Buddha. This type of discussion is what's found in Abhidhamma. For those who are of a scholarly, analytical nature, it can be quite a bit of intriguing to to read uh, a little bit about Abhidhamma and the nature of all aspects of the mind. Uh, However, the Buddha is very pragmatic about this, so he doesn't really concern himself so much about uh, the precise mechanisms. He just makes a general description which everybody understands, and that is that you can observe your own mind. Some, I think, in primitive states uh, as children and uh, more or less unreflective people, the ability to be a self-observer and aware of your own mind is, uh, is limited. It's a potential, but if the person is not directed to be an observer of their own, asked questions about their own mind, then they may not be aware of it. So they're more or less in it. It's like somebody who's somehow in a play but doesn't know it. Well, this happens all the time. A dog is taken on stage. The dog is, by the way, never compete with a dog on stage. Uh, Even the best Shakespearean actors really can't catch your attention if a dog's on stage. (laughs) They steal the scene. And so do children. But the dog doesn't know it's on stage. It is a perfect actor. It has absolute acts naturally. (laughs) The, uh, The actor has to not only get into the role, but they have to also know that they are acting as well. So we do this, of course. We do this in social situations. We even do it with ourselves. We can feel rather self-conscious even when we're alone. I had a period in my life where I lived as a hermit for a long time, as a lay hermit, alone, and I didn't see other people for weeks and months sometimes. And still, it takes a while before you, the sense of uh, being a, a, a participant in, in some sort of social thing it goes away. 
So this uh, mindfulness of mind is a very interesting category, and I kind of hinted at some of the problems with this uh, in interpretation in the last talk. And here is the essence of the description, and it's very brief. It's there basically uh, goes through three kinds of uh, states of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, and asks you to note. So this is, the Buddha is giving you exercises to become aware of what is going on. Now we, it's referred to as mind. Sometimes it's referred to as consciousness. Some of the translations of this word, which we're translating as mind, are uh, sometimes it's translated as consciousness, but uh, we would say that it's more or less your mood or your attitude. It's, there's an emotional dimension to this, and that's really critical for the Buddha. It's not merely intellectual activities, not mere activities of thought. It's actually greed. Are you greedy or not? Hateful or not? Deluded or not? And this is uh, greed and anger and delusion are... Uh, accompanied by emotional, it's an emotional condition. And of course, they're, they're also accompanied by feeling. And I'll talk a little bit more about this interweaving of feeling with these mental states. Then there are some uh, more positive types of mental states mentioned, whether your mind is contracted or expansive. And this is, uh, now, notice it's just a division into two. It is or it isn't. It doesn't say... Uh, greedy or generous, or greedy or equanimous, or greedy. There's a there's a dozens of mental states that would be uh, classified as not greedy or not angry or not deluded. But it doesn't go into that. It just says or not. So it keeps it simple. It keeps it at two. Now this is interesting, and. This should trigger a little recollection for you if you've heard enough talks, especially by me. There's a stage where the Buddha talks about his bodhisattva period, before he is enlightened. Before he's enlightened, he is, he's a uh, person trying to solve a problem. And this is interesting. Even to this day, this is one of the ways that you attempt to solve problems. If you have complex problems of plumbing or electrical problems or computer problems and so forth. One way to do this is you divide it in half. So you try to isolate one where the problem is. If you can just um, uh, decide that it's in this half of the machine, this half of the machine is all right, this half is not all right. So then you only have 50% uh, of complexity to work with. So the Buddha does this with his own mind. It's an incredibly complex machine. And he decides as a bodhisattva, that is before he is enlightened, before he is the Buddha, he decides, I'm going to divide my thoughts into two, wholesome and unwholesome. And I'm going to make two piles here. And the wholesome ones are the ones that I don't regret having. And this is, you know, this wouldn't be simply thought processes. This is these kind of thought processes accompanied by emotional structures and so forth. And he says, these I have and I don't, it doesn't, uh, it's not painful, it's not problematic, and I don't regret having them. 
These ones over here, this pile, they cause me trouble. They cause me trouble while I'm thinking them, while I'm experiencing them, and also afterwards. Or sometimes they don't bother me while I'm thinking, but they bother me afterwards. So uh, he is showing you some good techniques, and he's also showing you what a great problem solver he is. How does he manage this incredibly complex thing called the mind? He divides it into two, two heaps. So what we're doing here in this mindfulness of mind is just what the Buddha did as a bodhisattva. He's saying, I, I want to offer you this technique of dividing the mind. Now, later in the next, uh, when we flip the page and go into uh, mindfulness of Dhamma categories, you'll see a, a breakdown of negative mental states, emotional states. But they're, they're more elaborated, they're more detailed. So this is very, very basic, just in twos. So this is one way to become a lower of your mind. So you have to ask yourself, more or less, in a, in a, especially in a retreat where you can afford to do this, you can really note what's going on. Because, of course, uh, you can fall into these things without realizing it. It's only later when you wake up after a bout of anger or uh, frustration or any kind of fit of pique or craving or so forth. You kind of go into a dream world and then you emerge later, but you missed it. You weren't aware that you were in this, in this dream world. To be aware that you're in the dream world is already... It's possible to actually get out of the dream world. It's not good enough... It's not mere, mere awareness of that you are in a negative emotional state is not the point of this exercise. It's not good enough. It's just a beginning. And if you don't have this, if you can't name what's going on, if you don't know what's going on, uh, you really are lost. So this is how you'd, you would give an exercise for the development of a person to become move towards an enlightened specimen in this world to reduce their suffering. So first of all, you would have to sit down and, and uh, have all kinds of uh, conversations about how what things feel like. So this is, uh, this is the core, this is the basic model that the Buddha is... And quite a, I don't, a lot of people don't relate that. They don't, they don't see that. They, they're relating to the sutta... And uh, But he is giving it kind of like the prototypes of how he came up with these uh, strategies. There are positive uh, mental states as well in there, uh, expansive and uh, uh, concentrated and unconcentrated. So also it seems that they're indicating the possibility that you may uh, attain jhana and so forth. And... At the end of, and this is of course uh, an area which is difficult because um, as teaching jhana, reading about jhana, practicing jhana is, is tricky. It's trickier in some ways than understanding whether you're angry or not or greedy or not. Greed, hatred, delusion is very just common to the human experience and so uh, it's pretty certain that you have experienced these things, but 
such things as samadhi may have not been a, an experience in one's life. So when we describe these things, it's hard to know if, you're, if that's what you're experiencing. So uh, we really need a, uh, a samadhi machine that you just sort of clip onto the side of your temple and just tells you for sure. Uh, I went to a talk one time with the, the Dalai Lama, and uh, I didn't go with the Dalai Lama. I went to see the Dalai Lama. Actually, I have actually given it. I have actually sat beside the Dalai Lama while he was giving a talk. Uh, he, he leaned over to me and said, should we meditate? I said, it's up to you, venerable sir. <laughs> anyway, he, in this case, he was on stage at the Orpheum Theater, and he's on with a few uh, diverse personalities a whole theater full of people coming to see the Dalai Lama. And uh, one of these fellows was a psychologist, and he had come up with this gadget that you hung around your neck. And apparently it would, uh, it would glow or make some sort of vibration if, when you were angry. And uh, he, the, he was explaining, by the way, they don't... They, Neglect to prepare the Dalai Lama, whose English is not so good. His English comprehension is not so good when you're talking to him, and it's not so good when he's speaking. But they just dumped him on stage with these people, and they were, this person was talking about this thing, and the Dalai Lama was having trouble understanding, what, what, what is this? What is it? You, something around your neck? And, and so finally, he, he gets what it is. It's a, a thing that that shows you when you're angry. <laughs> and then he said, I'll buy one. <laughs> so, <laughs> great moment of humility and <laughs> humor. Uh, that's a good uh, uh, thing, is that, you know, it's very easy not to, just to get carried away and not realize that you're angry. So, um, let alone these subtle states, these states of deep samadhi and concentration. Am I in it? Is this what it's supposed to be? Etc. So, be merciful with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Understand that uh, you're you're reaching around in the subjective universe, and uh, as yet we don't have a little thing you can clip on your temple and tell you. Although they say there, it's coming, along with uh, full self-driving. <laughs> So, uh, this kind of uh, is an internal and subjective experience requiring great examination and and also self-honesty about it. And this can help you along the way to be a better reporter of one's own uh, internal states. And this is a preliminary. By the way, this is a preliminary. This should not be thought of as as an independent exercise or an independent approach to meditation. And I have heard um, people talk this way as that this is what about mindfulness of mind as a meditation technique? Mindfulness of mind should not be extracted and separated as a meditation technique. It is in a context. It is in the context of the four foundations of mindfulness, four aspects. And if you don't uh, aren't aware, fully aware, of the fourth category, 
then the mindfulness of mind will be used inappropriately. It's not a uh, freestanding, self-contained meditation technique. It is part of the larger picture. And any time you come across any of these meditation techniques, if you're in the, uh, the Theravada school, if you're a Buddhist, and so forth, then always understand that it fits in, within the context of the Eightfold Path. It's never to be uh, removed and isolated from that. So this, uh, this categorization of mindful my, uh, states of mind are, is very helpful because it's simple. It's just it is or it isn't. I'd like to go back a little bit to uh, the relationship between this and what we just covered, feelings. So here's something interesting as a little handful of ways of thinking about this. Anger is described as by the Buddha as a uh, great stain on the personality. And anger is accompanied by unpleasant feeling. It's not accompanied by pleasant feeling. So here's where we get the bridge between these two, uh, the observation of anger and the accompanying feeling. And this is where, again, you get this extrapolation in Abhidhamma. You always get these pairings and uh, sometimes three aspects. So this anger, and the anger can rise because of a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, an idea. Uh, so it can arise through the six senses and is, uh, produces this primary emotion, this some, some degree of all the way from mild irritation to uh, cold hatred. And, and then it's accompanied by a feeling. So you start to get this uh, kind of... Uh, tripod of uh, conditions there, there's a it comes through comes through from a from a, a sensory experience and then shapes consciousness as the as a volition so anger is a volition and it's accompanied by a feeling uh, a primary feeling which is pleasant neutral or unpleasant anger is intrinsically unpleasant and uh, there's some question. This is very interesting information. Lots of people don't know that. They talk as if uh, there's nothing like a good rage to get things off your chest and so forth. But they neglect to realize that the, the experience after anger is, why do you feel relief? Because you're not angry anymore. That's why you feel relief. You were just in pain there with the anger. Now you feel better. But it's not that, you've, that the anger made, didn't make you feel better. It's the absence of the anger that makes you feel better. There's an inquiry into this as well. Uh, the, the, the monks who, who practiced in the time of the Buddha and so forth were very, very sharp characters, and uh, they, they discussed this. Is it true that it's always a, um, an unpleasant experience? And one of the reasons why you talk about this is that all these things have degrees. So this, this is painful, but not compared to this. So that's less painful. Where does the pain stop? Where do you say it's actually neutral or pleasant? And where does it, where's the spectrum of pain? 
So they say there's a certain category of being or consciousness, which is uh, where anger is experienced as pleasant compared to their normal states. And I, my feeling is that they might be talking about profound depression <laughs> so that a person can get so depressed they, they feel kind of dead. They, they can't experience anything. They're trapped. They're, they're weighed down. And perhaps the first moment of return to health is a little flash of anger. So they might, compared with profound uh, the depths of depression, perhaps anger is, is felt like a, a little improvement on the situation. But still in the spectrum of states of consciousness, anger, even the mildest irritability is always classified in the lower dimensions of things. So this is one way to find out if you're angry or not. Ask yourself how you feel. <laughs> how do you feel? And so the next category is, am I greedy or not? Is this greed or not? Because greed is actually sometimes accompanied by pain, but it's sometimes also accompanied by pleasure. Greed, the Buddha says, is a lesser stain upon the personality, but is hard to get rid of, hard to overcome. Anger is a great stain on the personality, but strangely enough, fairly easy to overcome. Why? Why is that? Because anger is always accompanied by unpleasant feeling, you're, you're motivated. It would be nice to get over the pain of being angry. To be angry all the time is, is to live in pain. So it's very easy to get motivated to undo this pain. And this is something that one should realize. Quite often, people don't understand the nature of their emotions in relationship to the world. You're, you're again and again told in, in everything you read and hear uh, on the media and so forth that you should feel a certain way about a certain thing. Such and such bad thing is happening. You should be angry. I'm angry. Aren't you angry? And if you're not angry, then what's wrong with you? You know, aren't you, don't you, aren't you interested in justice? Aren't you interested, etc.? So this is a, they're preferring this to you. They're offering this to you again and again to say that your emotional state should reflect the world like a mirror. The Buddha is saying something radically and very strangely different. He's saying it has nothing to do with the world. How you feel is not a reflection of the world. You should not be a mirror reflecting the world. Why would you add to the distress in the world by joining it? Why would you be angry if there's already pain or problems in the world? Why should you add to it with your own problem? Shouldn't you do the opposite? Shouldn't you be serene and at ease, full of loving kindness, which is a very pleasant mental state, in the midst of all of this turmoil, anger, hatred? So this is a very, very, uh, very different this is a very different thought. So this is one of the things when you, when you do this division into two of these mental states, you should realize that you're separating these things out. You're recognizing anger, and you're not feeling that that's intrinsically appropriate to feel anger in certain situations and intrinsically appropriate to 
desire things, and of course advertising will tell you, don't you want this? Of course you want this. Everybody wants this. And you're like everybody else, aren't you? You want to be like everybody else. You want it too. What's wrong with you? If you don't want it, then why not? So this is, uh, this is a manipulation and misinformation about emotional structures, which is you need to remove yourself from these kind of uh, bad teachings. And so then the positive side of these things, if you're, you should be noting that, you know, in the midst of uh, pandemics, say, <laughs> uh, you still feel fine. And even the information that all kinds of people are dying and suffering from this and the economy is going down the toilet, you still feel serene and well and joyful and so forth because that's the least you can do. So you have to know what these positive mental states are and you have to learn that this is, uh, this is different than you've been told about the appropriate responses to these things. Now, you may not want to share this, uh, your, disclose your emotions in the midst of a, a, uh, a family gathering that, where none of your relatives or friends uh, have any awareness of this. They, they will think you're a little bit strange if you say, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the pandemic, you know, I, I, I'm fine, I'm serene and everything in the midst of it. No. Uh, you may choose to, this is a special kind of training a special kind of uh, community that you're participating in that understands this language and why it makes sense. So this is something to uh, understand how to apply these things. So back to this relationship between mental states and feeling. Anger is accompanied by negative, painful feelings, and greed is accompanied by both sometimes and why is greed harder to get rid of than anger? It's hard to get rid of because it's accompanied by pleasure, pleasant feeling. And so therefore, you're partly justified in not minding the fact that you're greedy. And it's less, why is it less, a lesser stain on the personality? Because it is less problematic in the world, although greed, when it gets out of hand and turns into something maniacal, then, uh, then it can cause great uh, problems in the world around you. Delusion is the last, and it's the root of both anger and greed, and it is also described as a, a great stain, and also, unfortunately, very hard to get rid of. And this is the problem of uh, delusion. And you really can't be... Um, fully happy until you have uprooted this delusion. Delusion is a kind of a potential for further suffering. It's temporarily suspended in uh, the samadhi states. There's a temporary suspension of this. And uh, so you get to feel what it's like to be lucid and at ease without anger, without greed, and in a state of uh, clarity and so you get a kind of a temporary, what the Buddha calls temporary nibbana. You get a taste for this. And it's a beautiful thing and is mentioned in, under this mindfulness of mind as a possibility. One should know whether one is experiencing samadhi or not. This, uh, there's a little uh, what's called the insight 
accompany a little refrain that repeats under each of these four foundations. It's a little insight structure. And I'm going to actually read it because it's a, it's a little hard to remember the precise wording, but this is a repeat identically except for you just replace the, um, the words of body, uh, feelings, mind, etc. So here it is. So he, and this is so-called the insight. After after reflecting on these uh, states of mind, so he abides, or she abides, contemplating mind as mind internally, contemplating mind as mind externally, abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in the mind, contemplating vanishing phenomena in the mind. He abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the mind, or else mindfulness that there is mind is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating mind as mind. Now, let's go over this, this phrase again. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> I will read that one more time. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Well, why is he then contemplating anger, greed, and delusion if he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world? You can do that with the body. You can abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world, going through all of the parts of the body, all of the charnel ground meditations, everything. You can also do that with physical feelings. You can contemplate pain, neutral, and pleasant. Abide not clinging to anything in the world. But you can't do that when you're greedy or angry or deluded. You can't be independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So one has to scratch one's shaved, nicely shaved head. Think, what? <laughs> How does that work? It doesn't. <laughs> so don't, don't be too slavish to the fact that this is a plug-in, what I call plug-ins a refrain, a chorus in a song that makes sense with most of the other um, uh, parts of the song, but not this one so much. You're not, you're not both uh, experiencing these uh, greed, hatred, delusion, and fully independent, not abiding, cling, not clinging to anything in the world. It just doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, it's not, doesn't work. And that, and that is unfortunately a point of confusion for some people who are using this mindfulness of mind uh, as a kind of, that you're somehow detached, not clinging to anything in the world while you're, ha- while you're angry, while you're greedy, and so forth. And this is one very convenient way of feeling like you're enlightened, but ex- still angry. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> it's very, very clear. In order to understand these things, you have to go back to the general instructions. And if anything is out of whack with that... but. And by the way, why do they do that? 
Why does that happen? Because it's a memory structure. It's a memory structure, and it is a rote repetition. And all you have to do is change one word. Body, feelings, mind, mental objects. And then the rest of it just stays that way. So the the monk can remember that, and you can recite it as a group. If you alter a few phrases in there, and you try to recite this as a group, 50 monks sit down together, it, it, it can easily get out of hand. So you, you find this kind of thing in the suttas, and, and when you're, re, you're a reading culture, remember, the, at the time of the Buddha, nobody read anything. By the way, that's, that's an interesting thing. We call a, a telepathy a mind reader. But what it, how can you be a mind reader when nobody can read? <laughs> so what are they? They don't use the same words as, as we to describe these phenomena, so we're importing things to it. So this is something to be very aware of. They are urging you to be, really what that's saying is that uh, you're moving towards, you're aspiring to non-clinging, independent. And this is an exercise in becoming a person who is abiding, independent of the world, not dragged into the the melodramas of the world. You're, you're going to stand outside this, and you're, you're doing this exercise in order to, to get, get that. You've decided that you're not going to be a participant in this melodrama, playing out this, the weeping and wailing and, uh, and the exalting in, in all kinds of uh, successes and failures, pleasures and pains, etc. You've decided you're, you're moving out of that game. You're now... And uh, a detached observer. And by the way, what does it feel like to be a detached observer? So here we go with the English again. It does sounds like you're a machine, but actually not. A detached observer is experiencing the delicious qualities of joy, ease, lightness, freedom of being, deep serenity. All of these positive, beautiful emotions are what the reward of the detached observer. So this is what you... uh, We always have to reinforce that this is not going towards like some sort of... that you're shutting down, you're becoming calloused and indifferent to everything. No. When the mind is released from this distressful tangle with the world, what does it experience? It experiences the awakening of the seven factors of enlightenment. It, it, the mind is now unharassed in the Buddha, as the Buddha says. It's pabasara, it's luminous, it shines. It's like the moon comes out from behind the clouds. It's like the sun comes out from behind the clouds. So this is uh, what we're aspiring to here. So I particularly I want to isolate that section uh, because I'm going to be going on tomorrow to... Uh, more or less the Dhamma uh, reflections, the Dhamma categories. So I, I, I don't spend much time with this. This is a very brief section, but it's very often uh, presented in a confusing way. Uh, and so I want to just reinforce that, that this, there is, despite the fact of this kind of phrases at the end, it's, you can't both be aloof, independent, etc., and be observing your own anger. You can't do that. You can be a person on the way, on the journey to being self-aware, 
And you must, by becoming more aware of your moods and understanding them as that, but you're still not, you're not past it. You're not, you haven't accomplished the actual instructions. You're, there's uh, more to the instructions to go. You're not there yet. So, I will leave that with you. No, one, one more thing. <laughs> uh, I have written a book <laughs> called Bloom. Uh, Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by a guy named Ajahn Sona. Uh, and this is just now, it's published and it is available. Uh, it's published by Sumero, Sumero Press, and it's available. And you can look on our website, uh, both the corpse meditation that I, the small uh, pamphlet on corpse meditation that I talked about under body. And then this and a few other things are uh, the instructions about how to acquire these things or how to, to see these things are on the, the website. So this is quite beautiful. And I want to share appreciation with... Uh, Oh, a very diligent uh, group of uh, editors, uh, stewards in the monastery, uh, Piedasi and Sumana, uh, for contributing to this. And, of course, this whole uh, little movie studio that we have here, Dantika and Metta, and very many others who are actually feeding us while we do this. So there's a lot of people involved in all of this stuff. So I leave this for you today. <laughs>